Good afternoon. It's four o'clock and the second Tuesday of the month. Time for Boat Talk here on Down East Community Radio, WERU FM Blue Hill 89.9 and WERU.org. I'm Alan Sprague. Mike Joyce is another co-host of Boat Talk and John Johansson, frequent guest, will be joining us for part of this show. Boat Talk used to be a call-in marine-related show. For now, it's a pre-recorded boating show so no calls can be taken. You can contact Boat Talk by email, though. It's simply boattalk at gmail.com. That's two T's. We're going to start with a recent interview with Glenn Holland of Belfast, Maine, a Maine boat builder, and his friend John Johansson, who is the editor of Maine Coastal News and organizer of the Maine Lobster Boat Races, and former tugboat owner, they start by talking about tugs. When did you get on the tug? <laughs> well, if you want to go back when the old man started working there, and I was a kid, about 1958, when I was right. eight years old. How old were you? Eight. When, you were eight. when I was eight, not much. Yeah. Ran, hung around the galley and ate a lot of food. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's about it. You must have learned a lot, like the engine room. Was that your favorite part? Because uh, you were on security, right? Well, she yeah. Well, in the beginning, she was a security when he first. Then they became the Evelyn. And then they rebuilt, re, repowered her back in the mid '60s. I can't remember exactly what year, around '64 or '5. And that's when she became the Evelyn. Right. So he, when the old man first went to work on, he was just a deckhand. And then he worked his way up to mate. And then he was when she became the Evelyn, he was the captain on her then. Right. And then John said that he basically became deckhand under your father. Because uh, he didn't come right away. He came because he was doing poultry. They both landed there about the same time. Now, I don't know whether the old man was there just a little bit ahead of him or a little after. I really don't. Yeah. With eight years old, who cares? <laughs> you know, I didn't pay much attention. <laughs> you know. But I knew they were there but it was about the same time. I right. saw that. He didn't like the security. John said he didn't like the security. He, th- he thought it was a... It was kind of hard to handle, not like the Clyde B. He liked the Clyde B. Were you on either, both of them? I filled in his deck in on the Clyde B a couple of times, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, when I first went to work there, I was, they put me on the Pauline. And she was towing pulp badges from Grandman and to Bucksport. And, and back. So we spent most of our time running back and forth between Bucksport and Grandman Ann. Yeah. And the old man also had it rigged, so whenever there was a boat going offshore, guess who was on it? <laughs> me. <laughs> he, he wanted me to get a little experience on that offshore towing. Right. Which I didn't mind. Right. She was a a canal tug. She came from the Erie Canal up that way. Uh-huh. And when yeah. she came here, she had a, a re- well, it was a real low house to get through the bridges and whatnot. But then she had this little box of a house on top of that. Why didn't you continue? Uncle Sam called me. <laughs> yeah, but you just went in the Coast Guard for what? Th- four four years? years? Well, I was going to go back to work on there after I got out of the Coast Guard, but I went back to see about getting my old job back, and they didn't seem to be in any great rush to give it to me. Right. 
by that time I had already finished off one bolt on spec. Right. So I just was that a Repco? Repco 30. Right. So I just kept right on doing that. Right. And you haven't stopped yet. Haven't stopped yet. I asked, how many have you made? If you count everything, the Repcos, the Weber's Coves, the 32s, the 30s, and 38s, and every damn thing we've done, even the 14th, I mean 14th of boats. Right. Uh, got to be around 500 or more. Because the first one came was the 30. Your, you the first one of mine was the 30. That's the half model up there for it. Right. And then we lost that in the fire, and then we stretched it to 32. And you've made a lot of them. Oh, almost 200, right? Uh, or over 200 now. I can't remember what the number was on the last one. It's get, it's not over. It's getting close to 200. It's like 180-something, right. I think. Right. And we just had a guy call yesterday. He ordered another one going down to Gamages. Because well, you, you know the one at Gamages, when they put it up for sale, it took them a week and a half to sell it. What took so long? <laughs> but, uh, you know, that that's why I knew it was coming. They're going to do another one. Yeah. Whenever I've done a spec boat, it always sold before it was finished. Right. Always. Uh, no, I haven't done a spec one in a long time. I just, just haven't had the time to do right. it. Now, Which the 38s, how many 38s have you made? Around 170 something. They're about about equal between the 32s and 38s. You got one on the floor. Yeah. Uh, no orders for any more of them. I've had, I've had a bunch of people talking about them lately, but right. That's about as far as it's gone. And the new boat. Well, I'm just waiting for the planks. I heard that. Mm. And it's supposed to, the planks are coming this week. No, they, I don't expect to see them for a couple more weeks. Oh. But when I get them, they're going to be the full-length ones. I, when I ordered them from Vikings, I talked to Dave Flanagan, told him what I was up to, and he said, I was going to order them in just, just pine, pine, you know. Mm -hmm. He said, how about spruce? And I said, spruce? And he said, yeah, he said, if, you, if you want if it's a throwaway plug, uh, well, why not spruce? I can get full-length pieces. You don't have to right. scaff them. Mm -hmm. said, and, that, and it's cheaper. So I said, well, if it's full length and cheaper, I'll take it. <laughs> That's kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> so why did you do the 20? Well, there's a lot of people asking about an 18. Cause they loved the 14, but it wasn't big enough. And I said, well, how about a 20? Because if you go just over 20 feet, you eliminate that Coast Guard crap. Level, you know, flotation and horsepower ratings and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's a lot of boats out there that are just over 20 feet. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why the 32, right? Because if you go over 33, is it there or 36? Is it 36? That uh, 36, I don't know. As long as you keep under 36, there's other Coast Guard regs, too. Yeah. With rafts and all that kind of crap. Right. That's why Stevie Carver wanted a 35. Right. He wanted to stay under. Right. He wanted to stay under that 36 thing. And, and you haven't been opposed to lengthening them. No, I'd lengthen one. We've done four of them. We've done two forties and two forty ones. Right. Because old school, what a nice looking boat that is. Yeah, because she's the forty one. Right. It's funny he ordered that be because he wanted to have the first forty one footer. I said, okay, <laughs> but another guy ordered one right behind him. Got his overboard first. <laughs> <laughs> Things are a little slower than they were. Right. Picking up some. Things are beginning to pick up. Yeah. Yeah, we've got one going clear to Louisiana, 14 footer. 
How'd they find out about you? I don't know. Probably yeah. Gavin on the internet. Yeah. Because oh. he posts quite a bit, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah. You have to do that now. And I don't know anything about that at all. And do you want to? No, not really. <laughs> not really. Yeah, I've heard that there's some of them down yeah. that neck of the woods. Well, we sent a 32 down a, to uh, the Bahamas here a while ago. That's the one that had the outboard. Yeah. Yep. No keel and an outboard. Yeah. And it went, it, it was 250 for Honda? It was a 250 Honda, yeah. And it, and it was doing 32 plus? Uh, she did, right out of the box, she did 32 knots. So and that's when 36 he got a, miles yeah, an hour. Yeah, and then when he got her home, he tried a couple of different wheels on her, and she's doing 34 now, so about 40 miles an hour. Wow. Which ain't bad for 250 horse outboard. No. I don't know, I bet I did at least five or six people talk about 32s outboard, but that's only that one so far. Right. Glenn has been racing in the lobster boat races since the early days, and Mike asked about the cluster of about two dozen trophies that were in the corner. You're just looking at the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) (laughs) There's more out there. The last time we counted them, I had around 100 of them. When did you start racing? You started with... Uh, I started the Marguerite G, G. wooden boat. Yeah, from Nerny Libby. Yep. That was 1980. Right. And then the following year, we finally got the Baron put together, and the rest is history. Right. Oh. And the Nobody big end? Never explained to you that the displacement boat, not a planing boat. Nobody ever told you that, right? Nobody, didn't nobody ever told you these were a planing boat, not a displacement <laughs> boat? Because <laughs> if you put enough power in them. Like I say, put enough power to them, yes, they will get right out These of boats were made to plane. That's a, that's, yeah. a, that's a myth. A lot of people think these are displacement boats. They are not. The only okay. They're not. You only put 50 horsepower in it, it is. Well, yeah, they had displacement boats to pull the throttle back. Yeah, they were right. just great. Right. But they also don't like hell if you put big power in them. Yeah. Right. right. Now look at that picture. Those two pictures of the Baron. Now that ain't there's a plane them, but what the hell is uh, it? Half the boat is not in the water. Right. Half the boat's out of the water. Both pictures. Yeah. Yeah. So w- when's it coming back? I'm going to tell you the same thing I told Benny Beal, <laughs> when you least expect it. <laughs> yep. It's kind of in the works. Let's just say, yeah. leave that's it a, at that. It's in the works. I asked how extreme lobster boat racing could become, you know, like racing on foils. That ain't a, lo- that ain't a boat anymore. That's a, no, fr- no. that's, that's a, that's a low-flying airplane. Yeah, <laughs> well, and we, and we might have one of them. What? Well, Steve Johnson's oh, got a got a TV's that bill most into oddball thing. <laughs> well, he's got a turbine, you know. Does he? Yeah. Four thousand something horsepower. You know, in some ways, this lobster boat racing has been ruined over the last few years. Well, it's a show. Yeah. It's like NASCAR. It's a show. Yeah, it's getting it's getting to be an expensive show. Well, it. it but look at what it did for you in your early years. Well, that was 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, or more. Try 40. <laughs> 40, yeah, 40. Uh, yeah, you're right. Well, look at what it did for you. Well, it Duffy, did then. But back then, it wasn't costing us a fortune either. No. You know, we were running basically the same boat, same engines, and everything else. Because you started out with with Fords, of course, because yep. she- Chevys were only good for uh, make, anchors. Make a good mooring for a small boat. Right. 
<laughs> and it, and with, when did the Young Brothers come out? Because they weren't out when you were out. We I started building that 30 before they started on the 30, that 33. Right. Or 38, actually. It was the first one they had. Uh, we're just a couple of years ahead of them. Glenn raced several incarnations of a boat called Red Baron, and John asked when that started. Well, the Baron, I started with a 460 Holman Moody Ford, 340 horses. And you ended with? A 600 cubic inch Ford at a little over a thousand. Right. <laughs> and you said, and you were at 58, six? 58.7. Seven. In 1990. Not that anybody's keeping track. No. What were some yeah. of your favorite races? You and the, the ones I won. <laughs> <laughs> That's a stupid question. <laughs> with the, how about with the Young Brothers? That was uh, always fun, wasn't it? Pro probably the, one of my favorite races was the very first one when I beat those guys down to Jonesport and Beald on, on the four. Mm -hmm. That was kind of satisfying. <laughs> Did they feel the same way? I doubt it. No. <laughs> it was kind of a fun race because nobody thought we were going to. Everybody thought we weren't going to do a damn thing because we were running that Ford. Oh, you've got to put an Oldsmobile and you've got to have a Buick or a Cadillac or some other damn thing. Well, that's all they had down there, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Well, there was old, old Mobile used to build them out on the backside of Beals. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, some of your fundraisers were with Andy Gove, who unfortunately yeah, that recently was later on between him and the old man. They loved going at it. Oh yeah, they were always going at it, and the old man always came out on top, which made and it, it wasn't by much though. There was a couple times yeah. there that it was pretty close. That one at Harpswell in what? That one 99? was a little on the close side. Yeah. But a win's a win. It don't matter if no, it's no, a boat I... length or a six inches. Right. <laughs> if you're in front. Yep. Second place. Except is... if you're in Jonesport. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, what do you mean? <laughs> well, I got a picture of the Baron Stewart a good four or five feet out ahead of another boat, but I ended up in second place. Mm -hmm. and, and Benny sent me some of the pictures. Well, I, I had a picture of that. You, you had one, too. Mm-hmm. It's not so much now, but back years ago when I first started racing down, I swear, you c I could have been the only boat in the race and come in second. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really like people from outside coming in there winning races. But now they don't mind you. It's not now. It's totally different now. Yeah. But back in the beginning, my wife used to keep saying, well, why do you keep going back? Because you and aggravate. It's simple. It irritates the hell out of them, and I want to do it. <laughs> I asked what driving skills are needed it's basically the boat and the horsepower i mean you're just running in a straight line and about anybody can do that but the start is a thing too the starts are a little yeah you got to be on your toes on the start because you can win it and lose it right at the start uh, it's not necessarily just throw around the corner and hold on no you got to make sure you're the first boat out if you can yeah. uh, and there's a lot of them guys over the years used to cheat like hell. There were some of them. They just would not line up. They had to be at least a boat length or two out ahead bef yeah, before the flag dropped. Before the flag dropped. Or the or, or running start, one or the other. Mm -hmm. There was all kinds of neat. How about the one where they used compressed air to cause cavitation one time? Yeah. That was pretty good. Well, there's been all kinds of tricks out there they've tried. The best race, though, I always remember is you and Pemaquid with Sid Eaton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah and that, that and he had a bottle, 
of nitrous. <laughs> and how did he know he, he? How did you know he had the had the bottle? It was my bottle, and he borrowed it. <laughs> <laughs> it was my setup, but he had it. Yeah. So I didn't have it. Right. But he accused me of using it. Well, how the hell could I use it when you've got it? And it's in the boat. It was in his boat. I remember Glenn Crawford going down below trying to unhook it. Well, <laughs> nobody actually saw him unhook it, but they wouldn't stop until he came back out. Right. They were running around the harbor in Pemaquid chasing each other. He was chasing him. <laughs> yeah. All I wanted to do was find out if he actually was using the bottle. <laughs> and I think he was. Yeah. yeah you know, why, so. why would he try to outrun us? <laughs> Uh, that was fun racing Sid sometimes, too, especially that, that Jimmy Stevens cop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a good day, too. Mm -hmm. Well, we're sandbagging everybody that day. And when it came time for the last race of the day for the Jimmy Stevens cop, the very first time ever up, uh, I didn't sandbag her anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no sandbagging then. <laughs> it was a foggy day. And when we got roaring out of the fog, it was us, not him. Mm hmm that was a good day. Yep. You were coming at the spectator fleet, too, if I remember correctly. No, I was running right up the middle. Because there was one time when the fleet, when they were running those races, it, is, it was so foggy that they, the racers came out of the fog. They were coming at the left side of the course. Yeah, that wasn't any of the races I was in. It must have been somebody else. Yeah. So. Well, you knew Stonington Harbor well enough. Well, I've been up and down that thoroughfare a few times. Right. John asked about his son's. Is he helping you with the 22, Gavin? Well, no, I've been doing yeah, he, yeah, he has been helping me on it some. So. Did he get his canoe built? No, no, he just hasn't gotten around to it. That round to it, you know, they're quite elusive. <laughs> uh, no, he has been helping me on the, on the 20 some. I'm, I've been using his eyes for some things. <laughs> <laughs> they're younger. <laughs> you know, that's, that's part of it. No, he's got a good eye for picking up things that aren't quite right. Right. And I've actually tested them on a couple of things. I purposely do something that wasn't quite right. Gavin, come look at this. He'd, he'd pick it up instantly. Right. Just kind of like a written test. Kind of. <laughs> you know, when the day comes to maybe turn this place over to him, I would hesitate for a second. Right. He can handle it. Yeah. Between him and his aunt. That's Glenn Holland and John Johansson. Next, I asked Mike if he would like to contribute anything, and he asked for a rerun of an interview from 2011. And hopefully we have a noted author, Bernard Cornwell, on the phone this morning. Are you there, Bernard? I'm here. Good morning. Good, Good morning. morning. And we find you down in Chatham, Massachusetts this morning on Cape Cod. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Home base. Home base, yeah, at least for the summer. You also have a boat, don't you? Uh, yeah, I think about... I do. I seem to remember I have one. I mean, I've been, I've been on stage so much that I've hardly seen the poor thing. It's, it's sitting out there on the mooring, but with any luck, I'll be on it this afternoon. Your boat's uh, a little unique. Could you describe it? Well, it's, it's a Cornish Crabber, which is a, a fairly well-known British um, boat. She's 24 feet um, on deck, 29 over spars. Um, she's a, a gaff rig topsail cutter. And they're very popular in Britain. I think about uh, the original um, crabbers, which I have one. I think 350 were made, but there's a new one, which I think they've made a lot more of. They're very pretty. People think she's 100 years old, and she's not. 
it's a uh, plum-stemmed, uh, heavy-built, uh, traditional English, like say, nor crab or That's boat. That's right. Yeah, they're based on a on a, on a fishing boat design, and they're, they're, it, it's. I mean, I say on mine mostly in Nantucket Sound, but it's really not very suitable for Nantucket Sound mm-hmm. because she's built for, you know, the western approaches and the big seas there. Deeper water. Uh, so she's she's the slowest boat in Nantucket Sound. I'm very <laughs> proud of her. Does that have a plum stem and a bowsprit? Yeah, it doesn't matter how fast you're going. It's how you feel while you're doing it. Absolutely. I, I mean, who wants to get there? I mean, we, you know, we've all been on those voyages where, where after a couple of weeks you see a destination. You think, I don't want to arrive. I want to keep going. Yeah. Well, it's good to have hobbies. You are the author of, uh, I, I could about count, four dozen more or less uh, novels. Uh, more or less. Yep. Most of them historical novels. There's uh, uh, several sailing novels, which are uh, great thrilling adventures. I recommend highly. But you write about um, um, military uh, history, basically, is your, uh, you know... I you think that's fair, yeah. I'm, I'm basically a military history fiction writer. That's a slightly clumsy title, but uh, yeah. Don't, and we go on making it, too. But there we go. Well, we're going to get to the, uh, you know, uh, now and then tie-ins, I guess. Shock, or is it shock, surprise? I don't know. I mean, go, going to Saratoga, and you, and you go to that place where the uh, the rebels took the British battery. And in many ways, that's the whole turning point of the whole war. I mean, if that attack had failed, it's quite possible the whole rebellion would have failed. Hmm. And near it is a monument, and the monument simply it says has no name on it. It just says to the greatest soldier of the American Revolution. Well, of course, that is Benedict Arnold. Well, we can't um, brag about that, though, hardly can we. Well, uh, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating story. I mean, if Benedict Arnold had not succeeded in taking that battery and getting dreadfully wounded in doing it, uh, the French wouldn't have come into the war. Uh, if the French hadn't come into the war, the Spanish wouldn't, the Dutch wouldn't. Uh, you know, everything changed at that moment, and, and certainly he deserves that monument. Um, but it is sort of a, it, it's a surprise when you see it, just as it's a surprise for Americans if they go to Battersea Parish Church in, in London and see a memorial window to who? to Benedict Arnold, the hero. Right, um, because he did serve well with the British afterwards, and again, it turns... I think he always regretted it. I mean, he, in his will, he asked to be buried in his patriot uniform, and he's buried in the crypt of Battersea Parish Church in his, in his patriot uniform. This reflects our Castine story this morning, too, I think, because we're talking about uh, small chances, leadership, and prickly characters. And prickly characters, indeed. Prickly yes. characters, yes. So when uh, James Nelson says history ain't math, what he says is that the... Uh, Pythagorean theorem gets written the same way every time, and it always works. While you can tell the the story of what happened, doesn't matter what happened. It it more matters how the story gets told afterwards. So, I think that's uh, also true. Yes, storytelling, boy, you've got a great deal of latitude. And uh, you know, we're talking about the revolution and the Constitution and the founders quite a bit nowadays. How do you think our revolutionary literacy is in America in general? Um. The, the the revolution in America is myth. It's, high, it, it, it's, it's the high ground of American myth. Um, it, 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 in, I mean, to make a really sort of silly statement, American history almost begins with the Civil War, and I'm talking about history, not, not about myth or legend. Um, most people actually don't know what happened in the revolution. No. Nope. Um, and they don't actually want to know. And, and that's fine, because, because the myth, the myth of the founding is immensely powerful. And it served the United States incredibly well. But it's a very strange thing. If you think about it, there's, there's been no great movie, novel about the Revolution. Wow. Lots and lots about the Civil War. I mean, starting off with Gone with the Wind, and you can keep going through, through 
you know, endless books, endless movies, but the revolution, and there's a reason for that, and the reason is, of course, is the moment you really begin to look at it, uh, if you go and read one of the great historians on it, like Middlecup or so on, you find out that, that what actually happened is very different to what the myth says happened. And, and at that point, it seems to, you know, people would prefer to keep the myth. And I don't blame them. I think it's such a powerful myth, and it has served this country so well, that it should be preserved. We uh, should kind of get to the plot of the thing, and we can, ex we can explore this more, but we've got to get to the story itself. And again, very few Americans, I've been pumping this, this uh, little chat we're having up over the last couple weeks and, and talking to everybody I can see, especially veterans at the, at the post office with a hat on. Um, you like your military history, I say? And the guy says, boy, sure do. Never heard of that, he says, and it happened right down the road from his house, okay? And... Uh, so in 1779, the, the American Revolution was kind of puttering along. Things were going sort of okay. Um, the British were pretty much clear of New England. They were, they were hanging out in Newport, Rhode Island, and New York City. But the rest of uh, New England was pretty much clear of the British. Washington was fighting them down to the south there. And uh, so why did they drop a garrison down to Castine, Maine? Well, you're right. I mean, the... the, the the British had completely abandoned New England, as you say, apart from Newport, and they were under siege there. Um, so New England had, had, was now more or less already independent, and it was ruling itself. It had its own government, it had its own taxes, it had all its, you know, the, the, the apparatus of government was already in place. And then suddenly, out of the blue, the British send a small fleet and a small group of, of, of troops to garrison Castine. And this really was out of the blue. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing to do. The idea behind it was, well, there were really two ideas. One was that the whole coast of New England was a, was a, a nest of, of privateers. And very fast, very well-armed New England ships are going out and raiding the British cargo boats that were coming down from, from Halifax to New York. So one idea was to establish a base, a naval base at Castine, so the Royal Navy could sort of hunt down these privateers. The second one was a bit more subtle. They wanted to establish a new colony, and they wanted to call it New Ireland. There was already Nova Scotia, New Scotland, and of course there was New England. So this is going to be New Ireland. Okay. And it was going to be a refuge for the loyalists who had been thrown out of those areas that were under the control of the rebels. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of people fled from Boston, loyalists, and, and they had nowhere to go. So Castine was going to become a refuge for, for, for loyalists. And there was also, at the back of the mind of, of, of the British, they knew they were, that this war was not going well. I mean, they were not just fighting the American rebels. I mean, there was a Spanish army in what is now Louisiana, Texas area. There was, of course, there was the French army. The Dutch had declared war on them. They were fighting all over the world. They knew this is probably going to be lost. So one of the ideas was to establish an area which they could take to the bargaining table, um, and they could give it up for something else. So there were a whole lot of reasons for sending an expedition to Castine. But in truth, it wasn't done terribly well. They didn't send enough men. They sent about 750 troops and three small ships of war, three sloops, none of which had more than 20 guns. And these were supposed to hold this whole colony of, of New Ireland. So there they were in the summer of 1779, out of the blue, up the Snellscott River, sails 750 redcoats to be guarded by these three sloops of war. 
and again, they're looking for a place to defend. Um, you go down to Castine nowadays. Castine is not on the road to anywhere nowadays. Okay, <laughs> it's kind of a dead end. One of the lovely there. things about it. Yes, it? it is. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, but it's um, the backstory of Castine. Uh, the Ock Club is uh, has four flags on it, and. Uh, it has, Castine has been owned by the Dutch, the French, the English, and the Americans. It's been fought over more than a couple of times. More than a couple of times. Yes, I mean, it's obviously a strategic place. It's, it's a great place to make a naval base. Yep, and um, uh, part of the theory there is that the harbor is not really that great a harbor. The prevailing wind here being southwest in the summertime, um, the harbor basically is lined up on a southwest axis there and runs right up the Bagaduce River. And there's a big tide that runs in there, two to five knots. You really have to uh, uh, contend with the current. And uh, you're against the wind there. Now you have a harbor that's easy to get into, not easy to get out of. Which and again, becomes important with what happened in that summer, indeed. It's a defensive, uh, it adds with the defensive uh, possibilities of the place, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Um, but of course, back then there was no state of Maine, as your readers, as your listeners know very well, and it was all part of Massachusetts. Yeah. And uh, although it, what's interesting is if you actually read the letters and the journals of the time, is is that the people who lived in what is now Maine uh, were not at all fond of Boston. They weren't actually fond of being part of Massachusetts. They felt that that, that Boston ignored them. Um, the complaint was they tax us, but they don't spend anything here. I mean, nothing changes. Let's and. Uh, uh, so, so the, when the when the British get there, and and some of some of your listeners won't like this, but it's true, they're actually landing in an area that is known for its loyalist sympathies. The, the Penobscot River, although it does have it does have patriots, and there is a local militia there, um, most most of the inhabitants are sympathetic to the British. I mean, one of the curious things about the revolution is that, is that I mean, let, let, if you put it very very roughly. About a third of the Americans were pro-British, a third were, were rebels, and a third were sitting on the fence, you know, wishing the whole damn thing would end. I'm sorry, sir. The, uh, no, the way it is was 99% of us were patriotic <laughs> rebels, and, and there was only 1% that were misguided. That's yeah. right, yeah. Haven't yeah. you been to an American junior high school? <laughs> <laughs> no, I missed that one. Yep. And, yeah, and, and Boston makes a, a, a unilateral decision, which is that we are going to throw them out. Didn't um, talk to George Washington about it. They didn't talk to George Washington. They did not go to the Continental Congress. Um, they decided this was going to be a massive operation. And, and they began to assemble an army, um, which was the, the famed Minutemen. I mean, it was, it was not a professional army. Um, the, these were, if you like, the, the, the militia. Um, by this time of the war, though, the, most of the best men are already serving with the, with the uh, Continental Army. Or dead, what, as somebody else said. Right. Or what's left is not yeah. of, the, of, of the greatest caliber. They also assemble the largest fleet that the, the rebels assemble during the, the whole of the revolution. There's over 40 ships. Most of these are transport. But there are 17 or 18 well-armed warships, and among them are three continental navy ships. And this becomes incredibly important to the story. In, the, in the, the harbor at Boston at that time, there was the, the Warren, which was a, a very, very fine frigate indeed. Um, and it belonged to the Continental Navy. And it obviously made sense to use the Warren. Uh, she was much bigger than any of the British ships. Uh, and she, you know, she's a professional warship. And so they sought permission of the Navy board in Washington. I mean, sorry, in Boston. And they said, yes, you can have the three Continental Navy ships that are in Boston Harbor, and they would lead the fleet. 
And so the fleet is put under the command of Commodore Dudley Saltonstall. And Saltonstall, of course, has been the villain of the story ever since. And again, a man who knew his business but hasn't come down in history quite as good as even Mowat, who burned Falmouth, for instance. You know. No, no, I mean, Mowat is a, is, a, is a consummate professional, as is indeed McLean. And this is part of, of, of what goes wrong for the rebel side which is they're up against a couple of guys who really know their business. And, and McLean especially is, is, is a good guy. Whenever you come across any reference to McLean written by the rebels, they all say he's a nice guy. You know, he, was, he, he treated us honorably. Uh, he, he was a, a good guy. Uh, but he's also a very good professional soldier. He's fought over 19 battles in Europe. He knows what he's doing. And, and McLean, when he builds the fort at Castine, which of course is still there, uh, you know, this is a very experienced man with a good eye for ground. He knows he's in trouble. He knows that the, that, that the Massachusetts is going to send a force against him. Um, he actually doesn't think he can survive, but he'll do his best, and so he sets up a professional defense. He starts digging his fort when the uh, Americans show up in the third week of July, 1779. And again, we're talking, we're doing boat talk this morning, we should mention, at half past the hour. Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, and we're talking to uh, author Bernard Cornwell down in Chatham, Massachusetts this morning. He's author uh, most recently of a great novel called The Fort, about Castine in 1779. So the uh, Americans sail up in uh, a fleet of like 37-odd ships, three dozen-odd ships. The British guy sees them coming and says, oh, my, I'm so yeah. sc we're so screwed, you know. Well, they actually, they do more or less say that. Um... And here the story, I mean, the, the, the story, let, we'll cut it a little bit short. Um, the Americans have a divided command. There's a, a, a man called Lovell who is the, the general in charge. Now, now, Lovell is a Massachusetts politician. Uh, his military experience is almost zip. But he is, the, he is the brigadier in charge of the army. And then you have Saltonstall, who is a professional Navy, naval officer, and certainly competent. But something goes very wrong. These two fall out. They, they, in, by the end of this thing, they're not talking to each other. You know, I mean, this is absolutely hopeless. I mean, you, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to do a, a, an amphibious operation, and, and the Army's leader is not talking to the Navy's leader. Um, more, more parallels <laughs> again. Uh, but, but, you know, the rebels finally d decide after some faffing about, that they're going to land on the, on the, the peninsula of Castine. And they do, and it's a brilliant operation. They, they come in at dawn, um, they send the, their guys in in longboats. The British have got troops up on the heights. If anybody who knows Castine, there's Dice's head, and there's that incredibly steep cliff. It's almost impossible to climb that cliff with a, with a gun in your hands. You have to sling your musket and use your hands to pull yourself up. And all the time you've got redcoats shooting at you from the top. The Americans luckily do have over 220 Marines. And these are, without doubt, the best troops on the American side, and they take the right wing. But not just the Marines, the militia too. They get to the top and they drive the British off. And the British retreat down that hilltop, that long spine, that rocky spine, to the fort, which is not finished. It's so unfinished that one American witness said that a man could jump the wall um, carrying, you know, muskets in both hands. You could just sort of run and jump over it. It was, it, it was nowhere near finished. Now, McLean knew this, and he sees his guys belting back from the woodland. And he stands 
and watches the Americans appear at the edge of the trees. And he later told an American, he said, well, I had my hand on the flag ready to pull it down in surrender. But I thought I'd give them two or three shots for honor's sake only before I actually surrendered. So he fired a couple of shots from the fort. And to his astonishment, the Americans gave up the attack. They just stopped. And, and at that point, everything starts to go wrong. McLean also said that every day that the Americans delay is worth a thousand men to me. That's right. And the day they should... Every day he's, he's digging his ditch deeper, he's raising his wall, he's, and Mowat, who is incredibly efficient, is bringing guns ashore from the ships to add more and more guns to the fort. So the fort becomes more and more formidable with every day that passes. And with every day that passes, Lovell and Sultan still fall out. And what they're really falling out about, the big row, is... Lovell doesn't think he can attack the fort at Castine unless Saltonstall takes his ships into the harbor and attacks the, Brit the three British ships. Uh, Lovell thinks there's absolutely no point in going into that harbor for the reasons that you said, I and mean, he called it that damned hole. He said, I'm not taking my ships into that damned hole. Because he knows that once he's in the harbor, it's going to be very difficult to get out. And once he's in that harbor, of course, the guns of the fort are going to be firing down into his ships. So Saltonstall won't go into the harbor. Lovell won't attack unless he goes into the harbor. And Saltonstall won't attack unless Lovell agrees to attack at the same time. So, you know, it, it, it's just ludicrous. Instead of them just sitting down, working this whole thing out, they just fall out. In the end, as I said, they're not even talking to each other. Uh, other people have to carry messages between them. And nothing happens. For we, three weeks, nothing happens. We should also mention, we're talking about the leaders there, the troops themselves from uh, General Lovell's council minutes on uh, August 11th. He says, there is a great want of discipline and subordination, many of the officers being so exceedingly slack in their duty, the soldiers so adverse to the service, and the wood in which we are camped so very thick that on an alarm or any special occasion, nearly one-fourth part of the army are skulked out of the way or concealed. And the boys just hard, weren't fierce. You know, those, those men were dragged off their farms in the summertime, and they didn't want to go down there and do that. And, and according to one very good witness on the American side, uh, only about a third of them were fit enough to fight anyway. Um, they, they hoped to take over 1,500 men. They got far fewer than that. I mean, they didn't even get 1,000. And it's a sort of rule of thumb that if you're going to attack a position, you should outnumber the defenders by about three to one. Well, they simply don't. I mean, certainly Saltonstall's stuff. I mean, the ships outnumber the British ships by far more than that. I mean, county, if you just count the number of cannons on the warships, it's about ten to one. But on land, no. But they do have these marines, but by this, because the marines are under Saltonstall's command... And tragically for the Americans, the, the leader of the Marines, a, a, a splendid man, um, was killed on the, the, the amphibious landing. So, you know, all, everything that can go wrong for the Americans goes wrong. Everything that could go right for the British goes right. Although, in truth, all that McLean has to do is sit tight. He, he really doesn't have to do anything very much. Uh, he does send out patrols. And once he realizes that the morale of the rebels is, is rock bottom, he sends out more and more patrols just to harass them and, and, and just to keep them in a very depressed state. Uh, but other than that, he just has to go on building the walls of the fort, strengthening the fort, and, of course, waiting for relief. And the Americans, the theme of the whole uh, Penobscot expedition is they dither and diddle. They, they spend a couple they of also, days... After a couple of weeks, they realize that they can't do it. 
Um, Lovell is a hopeless. I mean, you have to blame Lovell for the morale of his men because he simply doesn't offer leadership. <laughs> and you also have to blame him for the fact that he's simply making no real effort to get along with Sultan Storm. Um, but then he decides, okay, what we need is we need real troops. And they send for a regiment from the Continental Army. I mean, they, they swallow their pride. Massachusetts understands that they can't do this on their own. And so they ask for the help of the Continental Army. And a very fine regiment, Jackson's regiment, that was part of the uh, um, Continental Army besieging Newport, is dispatched to help them. We also have reinforcements on the way down from uh, down east, uh, some Indians and Colonel John Allen from uh, Machias, but they're not going right, to get the there. Right, Indians were, 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 were immensely useful. They're not um, going to get they, there they in time either. They were very good, but, but you know, there were not enough of them. Um, and they suffered disproportionate casualties, as, as the Marines did. Yeah. But not only is, is, of course, Colonel Jackson's regiment coming, and they have to march from Newport to Boston, and once they're at Boston, they'll be put on ships and they'll be sailed down east. Uh, the British are also sending reinforcements. So now it's a race. Will Colonel Jackson's regiment reach Penobscot before a very powerful fleet, which has come from New York, before that reaches? Well, we know what happened, of course. Uh, yes, uh, and again, we're talking to author Bernard Cornwell this morning about his novel, The Fort. And Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Uh, is somebody, we have a caller on the line? Good morning. Uh, morning. You'd like to speak with uh, us and Bernard Cornwell this morning? Yes, Dean Mayhew, Professor of History. Hi, Dean. Good morning, Dean. Professor Ware, Professor Mayhew. Yeah, nice. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the little jingle, needless to say, about Paul Revere and his activities up here. We haven't got to Paul Revere yet, but we're certainly trying to. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the cowardly flight of Paul Revere <laughs> in the stormy summer of 79 when the British attacked with ships of the line. He plucked up his silver and stole from sight, ignoring the order to stand and fight. They court-martialed Paul and called him yellow, but history listened to Mr. Longfellow. And again, mm -hmm. uh, part of the great story we haven't got to yet is Paul Revere was there, too. He was oh, the yeah. head of the he got American a Scotch artillery. He got a Scotch verdict. He was uh, not effective in his position. It's the only time he fought the British, he was court-martialed twice for cowardice. That's and sure. he still gets to be a great American hero. Again, the theme of uh, how the story gets told and the, the small ironies of history, a beautiful thing. Well, I told, uh, I told Newsweek magazine a number of years ago that if, uh, if uh, Wadsworth had known that he would have a grandson who would immortalize Revere, Revere he would have had himself castrated on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and again, Paul Revere, as the artillery commander, tortured General Wadsworth, whose daughter was just born and was going to be Henry's grandmother, right? Henry's yep. mother. Henry's yep. mother, yes. Yep. And Henry wrote that poem on the eve of the Civil War trying to make a myth. Yep. Um, he was deliberately mythologizing American history, and, and Revere comes out smelling great. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of the questions that I, I couldn't answer, I mean, may, maybe I'd love if the professor could answer it, is, is I don't think there's an answer, is did Peleg Wadsworth ever talk to his grandson about Revere? I mean, uh, Henry was 21 or 22 when his grandfather died. My own feeling is he didn't. Huh. Um, I mean, Peleg Wadsworth so, had sure. many, many exciting stories to tell of the revolution. I mean, not just his escape from British captivity at Castine, but he'd, he'd served with, 
with George Washington. Uh, Washington had an immense admiration for, the, for, for Wadsworth. I mean, I think there were plenty of stories to tell uh, Henry without telling him about the, the, the sort of bad side of things. And undoubtedly, Revere was the bad side. No, let's... I wrote a piece for uh, the Revere Museum in Boston, sent it along, and they never did put it on display. They locked it in a safe. They wouldn't destroy it, but at the same time, they wouldn't show it. Uh, again, because our American myths are very important to us. Very now. much so. Paul Revere is a great one, but um, he was kind of a prickly character. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he is a prickly character. I mean, I, 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 let me just sort of jump back a moment, because what got me interested in this story in the first place is, is not just is not Paul Revere. It was, the, it was the presence at Castine of another man about whom a great poem was written. This is a man called John Moore. Oh, yeah. And John Moore is perhaps the greatest might have been of, the, of, of British military history. Definitely. Um, John Moore, who is, this is his first fight. He's a very young, I think he's 19 or 18-year-old lieutenant to Castine. He goes on to become a general. He, he's a reformer. Um, and he basically creates the army that Wellington is going to use to defeat Napoleon. And, and in the end, Sir John Moore dies defeating Marshal Sue at the Battle of Corona in 1809. And I, he was the guy I was interested in. And then I tripped over Revere. And, and of course, Revere rather took over. Uh, and how extraordinary is it that at this little tiny engagement on, on the coast of New England, there should be two men present about whom great and famous poems were written. When I can't think of two men who were present at Waterloo or Gettysburg that had oh. that. Um, but yeah, Revere is prickly. And I, I think Revere had been refused a commission in the Continental Army. Uh, the, the reason seems to be that he wasn't a gentleman enough. And I think that's a huge chip on his shoulder, maybe, maybe a justified chip on his shoulder. And, and that he, he's desperate to fight. He desperately wants to fight. Once he actually gets it to, to war, he finds it horribly uncomfortable, and he doesn't like it, and he's also a terrible subordinate. Well, the beauty of, of him at, at this particular point is that he would, of, would order the chest full of linens, what money he had, and other things of great value to himself, back to Boston. He had, <laughs> the, he had the chest carried from Hamden uh, across to Augusta, and then ultimately down the Kennebec to Booth Bay, and then uh, all the way to Boston. I don't think he would have done that, that, that but second-hand is, is behind his, his, his court-martial and the, and the investigations into his behavior because he refuses a direct order to help rescue a, a crew from, a, 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 from British capture. And, and he actually says, I've got my luggage here, I can't risk my luggage. But he's, he, just, he's just not that good at his job, though, because the Americans land on the top of the bluff there at Dice's Head and they haul some cannon up. They're actually a little bit above the British fort. And the British guy then says, well, now we're screwed because they're going to batter us to pieces, but Revere's artillery just kind of ineffectually wastes their shots. And, and again, there, there's a want of leadership and, and uh, uh, you know, Again, it's there. the want of leadership. And, and it, it's, there was a, um, a Marine officer there um, who had served in the artillery in the Continental Army and, and was a very efficient um, artillerist. And he gives evidence that, I mean, he basically says, Revere doesn't know his business. Um, and, and that appears to be true, that, that, uh, that the American cannon, which was certainly heavy enough to do severe damage to the fort, simply doesn't.
they could have won. They could have won the battle despite everything else. If, like, say, he had been a little better at his job, I'm suggesting. Revere I don't was, think it's fair uh, to blame Revere for the failure of the expedition. I mean, I, it, 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 he didn't help. He didn't help at all. I mean, um, um, usually it's Saltonstall who's blamed. I mean, Saltonstall has been made to carry the whole blame for the failure. I think that, that far more responsibility rests with Lovell. But, but that's just my opinion. I'd love to hear what the professor has to say on that one. Well, needless to say, Lovell beat the rap. Yes. And there was a fascinating book called The Massachusetts Conspiracy. Um, and basically, and I find this, this very, very uh, convincing, that, that what the, the state of Massachusetts does after the, the, the failure of the expedition, which, remember, has, has bankrupted them. They put up a million and a half pounds. Oh, I'm probably more than More that. than they have. Probably more than that. And, and, and the state is bankrupt. And what they have to do now is they have to blame somebody else for the failure. And they have this incredibly convenient scapegoat, Dudley Saltonstall, who is a, a continental, a federal officer. And so all the blame is heaped onto Saltonstall, and they then go to the, to the federal government and say, look, you let us down. It's your fault this thing failed. It's your fault that we're bankrupt, so please give us the money. And in the end, that worked. I mean, in the end, they got most of the money back from the federal government. Dudley, yeah, Dudley, curiously enough, uh, died of the bloody flux down in Haiti. Yes. Went from the ridiculous to the sublime. Let's, uh, while we're on the blame game here, I, I kind of take uh, your thesis, Bernard, that uh, Solenstahl is not really the goat there. He kind of did know his business, but... As you say, um, John Paul Jones served uh, with Saltonstall. Didn't think too much of him. Nope. If we had a different Navy guy there, let's imagine it was John Paul Jones. He was a prickly character. He was oh, hard to get along with if he wasn't fighting. You'd have kissed McLean goodbye on day one if John Paul Jones had been there. They would have gone and, in and there, taken the British ships, and, and then... The stuff about not being able to get in and out of the harbor, remember, a year later, um, a man called Little, an American captain called Little, sailed into Castine Harbor when it's now under British control, there are far more than three British ships in the harbor, and the fort is now finished. He sails brazenly into the harbor, goes up to a wharf, cuts out a British warship, and sails both. Never heard that one. Excellent. Oh, yeah, that happened. And, you know, I mean, if Little could do it, I think it was in 1780. Dalton Saw could have done it in 79. Mm-hmm. If the British had lost their ships, um, the Americans would be in the harbor there and being fired down on the fort, but they don't even have to go up to Bagadoos. They can go over to Smith Cove, and they're several miles away from the fort and got shelter over there and good water. And, and again, I think that the British position would have been horribly diminished if they had lost the been. ships. Absolutely. Once, once, you're, once you've cleared the three British ships from, from Castine Harbor, then there's, there are endless places you can go where you're out of range of the British guns. And indeed, you know, the Americans did try establishing batteries all around that, that harbor, um, but too little too late. We have a, a, a note from a, from a listener to ask about the British Canal behind Castine. That, I think, was built in the War of 1812. Um, fascinating, this, because uh, the, the, the post of Castine was the very last British post to be yielded back to, to the new United States of America at the end of the Revolutionary War. Uh, then when the War of 1812 comes along, the British go straight back to Castine, take the fort back again without any, any particular effort, and they use it as a, a place to uh, 
you, you can pay, pay your customs dues. So if you, if you wanted to go on trade, you're a New Englander, and you wanted to go on trading, this was a safe place to trade from because it was under the protection of the Royal Navy, and you paid your customs dues to the, to the British officials. And they made so much money that they started a trust fund, which still runs Dalhousie University in Canada. It's still, um, the whole university still runs off the Castine Customs Trust Fund of the War of 1812. But the, the, the British Canal, I'm pretty certain, was built in the War of 1812. It certainly didn't feature in 1779. This uh, battle, again... Um you know, uh, you look at military history, you go, why'd they do that? Well, it was intensely practical. You do that or the other guys are going to take advantage of you, kill you, or capture you. And so uh, McLean, when he got to Castine, did not put his fort on the highest piece of ground. When the Americans got to Castine, they went, wow, we would have taken the highest piece of ground, so that's why they went up the cliff. McLean wasn't defending the cliff. If he was going to attack, he would have come, uh, come across the neck where the canal now is. Right. Well, as, as Frederick the Great says, if you defend everything, you defend nothing. Yeah. Um, and, and the advantage of his position, or the fort, where it is, where you see it today, is, of course, that it commands the whole of the harbor, of, at least the, the inner harbor at Castine, much more than a fort up on the cliff would do. And uh, if you, you know... He put the fort in sort of the best place to dominate the whole of the peninsula and the harbor. It's not the perfect place, but there probably isn't a perfect place. And again, everybody's making different assumptions, and uh, everybody thinks that the other guys have more than they do, and, and that's how things happen now. Um, one more time, we have on the phone this morning uh, author Bernard Cornwell, and uh, he is the author of The Fort. We also have right now uh, Dean Mayhew, a history professor down at Maine Maritime Academy in Castine. We're talking about... And, uh, Bernard, before we run out of time here, I got to, uh, um, you, you get, as a novelist, to play with history. You get to mess, as they say on Star Trek, with the space-time continuum, you know. And you have a lovely scene in there where you um, have General Wadsworth and General McLean meet under a flag of truce. Yeah, that, that, that meeting, meeting took place. It wasn't between Wadsworth and McLean. Um, I wanted them to meet. It was partly because when I wrote the book, I became extremely fond of Peleg Wadsworth and, and spent a lot of time reading his letters. Anything I, anything I get my hands on by him, he's a most admirable, splendid man, Wadsworth. And, I, and, and they're both nice guys. And I thought this book is not going to work unless they meet. They, they have to meet because although they're enemies, they're going to like each other. And so, I mean... This is the second book I've written set in the American Revolution. You have to be incredibly careful because you're trespassing on, if you like, sacred ground. So you have to get your facts right. Uh, but I thought the reader would forgive me this one piece of invention um, and of, of, of allowing Wadsworth to meet McLean. I don't think, in fact, they ever did meet because although eventually Wadsworth was captured by the British, McLean, I think, had already gone back to Halifax by then. And of course, McLean, um, I mean, Wadsworth goes on to have an exciting escape from Fort George and Castine. Well, we're talking, talking this morning of the legacy of the uh, revolution, historical literacy of the revolution and, and echoes nowadays. You have Wadsworth we and have. McLean speak about tyranny, the, the nature of uh, King George's tyranny, and McLean teases Wadsworth that your, your rebellion is being led by wealthy men who are doing really, really well. And what's the tyranny, that they need to be richer? And Wadsworth says, no, we've got to be free to choose. 
And I'm asking you this morning, is are you sending us a message across the space-time continuum here about... <laughs> Absolutely not. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's big echoes now. I just hear an echo, big echo here. Well, that may be, but but no. I mean, I think all I'm trying to do is, in fact, to, to repeat uh, a conversation that was often had during the time. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, it 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 it, it, it harks back to Sam Johnson's. Uh, cutting statement, why is it that we hear the loudest yelps of liberty from the drivers of slaves? Mm. We have another phone call, so let's go quickly to that, too. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi. Um, I call because I wanted to ask about uh, the privateering that took place along the coast of New England. Um, I wanted to ask Mr. Cornwell, I'm sure he's familiar with the work of Kenneth Roberts. Oh, yes. Yes. And uh, I wondered if you'd ever thought of looking into the privateering end of things from, from the uh, American side. It would be, it would be a fascinating thing to look at, because, I mean, there, there's so many stories there. Uh, I, I haven't really thought about, about writing that. Um, but it is a, a completely... And, of course, one of the, the ironies of this is that uh, Stall, having been dismissed from the Continental Navy because of what happened to Castine, goes on to become a privateer and makes the richest capture of the whole Revolutionary War. Yeah, exactly. He's an immensely wealthy man through capturing a, a, a British cargo ship that had, I can't remember what it was carrying now, but it was the richest cargo of the ever captured. It is the most successful revolution led by men of enormous intelligence. I mean, if you want to, I think, to just stand back and take the widest possible view, there, there is an inevitability about it. I mean, even if, if, if the thing had failed... Uh, it couldn't have gone on as it was. I mean, the, the, in the end, you are going to have an independent country, the 13 colonies. And we thank you so much, Bernard Cornwell, for speaking with us this morning on Boat Talk. Well, thank you. Thank you all. Thank, thank you. you. The team, too. And that will put Boat Talk back on the mooring for another month. I'm Alan Sprague, wondering if working on a drill ship is boring. Thanks for helping to keep WERU-FM Blue Hill afloat. Radio EcoShock is next at 5. I survive the pinch of fish and take some home to lie, sir.